Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Journal of Pediatric Orthopedics podcast. This is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans. And instead of our usual review of recent key articles from the journal, today I'm excited to introduce to you a new podcast on pediatric orthopedics. It's called Interview with a PediPod, and today's episode will be hosted by Nick Fletcher, who deserves an enormous amount of credit for bringing this to fruition. Every episode, which will likely correspond with major annual meetings in our field, will bring you a sit-down, in-depth conversation with one of the quote-unquote giants of the field on everything from how they got to where they are, to how they run a research meeting, to how they juggle hobbies and a healthy home life. I'm sure you'll enjoy it, and if so, please look for Interview with a PD Pod on Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify, where it will be available soon, so you don't miss any future episodes. Hi, everybody. This is Nick Fletcher, and this is the first ever interview with a PD Pod. This is a presentation that has come about through the Public Education and Media Relations Committee for the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America. The basic concept of this podcast is going to be a discussion with luminaries and stalwarts within our field to learn how they think, how they have prospered, how they have developed their careers and how they think that the future generations for pediatric orthopedists will progress. Some of the basic concepts here have been brought out of a number of other interview-based podcasts, such as the Tim Ferriss Show, amongst others. And the idea is, just as in those podcasts, to get to know some of the people who we look up to as a society and learn how they got there and hear what they think about their careers and the future of children's orthopedics. I would like to thank initially Carter Clements, as well as other members of the Pediatric Orthopedic Society who are involved with the concept of podcasts, and I think that this will be something that hopefully we'll be able to extend over numerous episodes. I'm excited to have our first guest today. Uh, This is a friend and certainly mentor of mine, as well as I'm sure many of you listening, and that is Mike Vitale. Mike will be the incoming Vice President to the Pediatric Orthopedic Society and the President-Elect for 2020. He is a pediatric orthopedic spine surgeon at Columbia Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. He was a Northeastern guy trained at Columbia as well before doing his fellowship out at CHLA in Los Angeles, but he's been back there since the early 2000s. And Mike is truly a triple threat. He is a wonderful educator, As all of his prior fellows will tell you, he takes tremendous care of his very challenging patient population, and he is an avid researcher with nearly 200 publications. I've known Mike now for a while, and I truly cannot figure out how he gets all of this done within the 24 hours that he's allotted each day. He has a big, big impact in his hospital. He has done a tremendous amount of work improving quality and safety at Columbia Presbyterian as it relates to spine surgery. He has been the director of the International Pediatric Orthopedic Symposium, or IPOS, down in Orlando in conjunction with Jack Flynn and Don Bay. He has obviously been a big part of POSNA, as is evidenced by his election to the presidential line. And he's a big member of a number of spinal deformity study groups, including the HARM study group, the children's spine study groups, and I'm sure a number of other ones that have lots of acronyms. 
I'm very excited to hear this interview with Mike today. I'm really looking forward to learning about where he came from, what he has done to continuously better himself, how he looks for ways to improve his clinical care, his research, his education, and really what he sees for the future in children's orthopedics. So without further ado, I welcome Mike Vitale. So I'm sitting here with Mike and we've got a plate of food um, and Mike is in between meetings and we're very excited that he's here today with us. It's going to be very loose and we're going to talk a little bit about his background and sort of what he's done and where he's going and what he thinks the future of children's orthopedics, the future of his practice, the future of spine surgery is going to be and we're going to try to tie all that together in about 45 minutes. Great, Nick. I really appreciate you doing this and making the time and leading this really interesting, important effort for Plaza. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, it should be uh, should be a lot of fun. So you're a New England guy, or Northeastern guy, I should say, um, and you, you went to Trinity College and you went to Columbia for, for undergrad and, and med school and residency, and then you went out to L.A. What kind of student were you? Were you a, you know, a real academic guy? You were an athlete, do a little bit of everything? Were you a leader? You know, my dad is still an orthopedic surgeon turning 80, still practices in Brooklyn where I grew up. And early on, I was very, very clear that I did not want to be an orthopedic surgeon. And in retrospect, was a bit oppositional around that whole concept. But did, you know, well enough during high school and went to Trinity College. And, you know, there, um, it was sort of a watershed when I look back on it. I could have taken the wrong path, but unfortunately, I came around and did pretty well at Trinity. One of the fun things I did was get a Watson Fellowship after Trinity to travel around the world okay. to look at the effect of healthcare culture on healthcare delivery, which uh, all these years later is really interesting to think about. And then I uh, ended up Columbia, where I've been more or less now for 20 years. But you went out to L.A., which was a little bit unique at the time because spent all this time in the Northeast. Was there something about L.A. that really drew you out? Was there somebody out there who you really wanted to go spend time with? I knew I wanted a fellowship that had a strong mentorship model. I knew Vern Tolo out there was the type of person that I really wanted to be with all these years later. He's still my mentor. And that's really, I think, one of the important things when it comes to fellowship choices, finding that unique fit. I didn't really mind traveling. It was only a year. I wanted a place where I knew I would do a lot of spine. David Skaggs had recently gone out there and started doing vectors and early onset scoliosis. And in retrospect, those uh, remain some of my deepest connections, not only in orthopedics, but in life. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Vern, who, who I know is, is a mentor to a lot, and you and Dave have been long-time, probably fast friends, and spent a lot of time together. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how that relationship developed and grew? And To be honest, it wasn't a pure friendship relationship while I was there as a fellow. I think that we were both busy trying to do what live our respective roles, but soon after, we became uh, colleagues, co-workers, co-researchers, and great friends. In fact, he and his wife came out to New York two weeks ago and spent some time with my wife and his daughter, who's now a medical student at Columbia. In two weeks, he and his son are coming to play golf at my golf club with, uh, with me and my son. So I truly consider David one of my great friends, confidants, and sort of journeymen through this uh, whole thing together. Yeah, you guys uh, have a terrific relationship, and I've been fortunate to be friends with Olfia. So it's interesting to think about that process, and I, you know, I look at my own practice and the partners that I join and the practice that I join, and I feel like I had a lot of breaks along the way. And certainly for people who are coming out, they're sort of looking for the opportunities. What sort of opportunities do you think were unique, or what breaks did you get early on that really helped you as you established a career and started to create a career? You know, I had originally thought about applying to MD-PhD programs in the era of neuroscience. I was very interested in neuroscience. 
And I uh, spent some time over a summer at Columbia doing Parkinson's disease research and loved the science part of it, but really didn't like the reality that, at least for my ADHD personality, I didn't feel like I could deliver as much outcome to the patient as I wanted in that space. So changing my mind there, I think, was really important because, again, life is about fit, and that would not have been the right fit for me. At the same time, I maintained an interest in research and clinical research and sort of some of the broader macroeconomic issues in healthcare that were part of my Watson Fellowship. And along the way, during medical school, made a decision to take a year off, which back then really was not so popular. Now it's really common to do so, and I think a wise thing for most people. And I obtained a master's in public health with an emphasis on outcomes research, which has really served me lots over the years and allowed me to just be a little bit more participatory in some of the discussions around clinical research and healthcare change. So you're obviously a couple years ahead of me in this process, but like you said, nowadays, lots of people come out are, are multiple degrees. Were you sort of in the in the scope of orthopedics, a little bit of a frontierman in that area? Did people look at you and go, you know, why are you taking this extra year? Did it all make sense based on sort of, you know, your trajectory and your goals, you think? Well, I guess that's right. You know, now in today's world, I think it's increasingly obvious that being well-armed, whether that means an MBA, an MPH, advanced degree is probably important in today's changing world, but it was less common back then, and certainly many people, parents included, were wondering why <laughs> Columbia Medical School was a five-year program. Well, that's good. Well, it's obviously served you well. I was a molecular biology major in college, which I'm sure on some level I continue to use occasionally, but do you feel like you draw a lot of continued added benefit from the MPH I do. I think the the degree gets you in the room and and exposes you to some basic vernacular. And then, you know, like so many other things, it's really on-the-job training. You know, a great example is the most recently uh, the work that I've done in quality. Although I didn't have any formal exposure to quality improvement methods, it's not so different than a lot of the way you think about clinical research, uh, design, methodology. And I think even many years later, it still provided me some benefit in terms of rolling my sleeves up and getting familiar with the unfamiliar because the world's changing and you're never going to be able to take a course for what's coming up ahead. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's interesting. So I wanted to ask a question about sort of your pursuit of academia and it sounds as though that was sort of always the plan. You never really had a plan to veer out of academia. You know, I get asked a lot and our residents are always saying, well, I'd really love to come back to academics, but it'll sort of depend on the job. And I'm curious, as a guy who always had that trajectory, have you thought about what you can tell of, you know, potential future children's orthopedists or just physicians in general, what to do when that specific academic job that they thought they wanted doesn't come together? Maybe they're looking more for a private practice with an academic option, or maybe academia somewhere else may be a better option. What things do you tell people when they come and ask you about that? I think there's two things. The first concept is it's a long career. And even if the exact position is not immediately available now, we often have the ability to create that ideal position over time. Um, These things take time and pressure. And the second thing is that we need to be really honest with ourselves about who we want to do. Everyone sort of feels like they want to be an academic, whatever, surgeon, but it's really not for everyone. I think that the reality is what we do is so much fun. We get to take care of broken, twisted kids with our hands, and that is amazing. And, you know, if you're coming home and doing good patient care, you shouldn't necessarily feel the pressure to have to write 15 papers a year or get involved in administration. 
you know, we all have different stars to follow and clinical care is first and foremost what brings us, it's our primary responsibility. Having said that, many people are interested in doing things at scale and uh, helping drive innovation in what we do. And it's true that those positions are harder and harder to come by. So again, I think that if you really know yourself and you know that it's a long-term goal, just like if you were training to be an Olympic athlete, you have to have a long-term picture in mind. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I continuously tell people that their first job may, be, may not be their only job. And even within their first job, if you can find the little wins, you know, I mean, I joined a partner, a single partner at a, in a major group, but it was pretty much all adult. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what we've done is just been finding the opportunities with that. So I, I try to preach that to people as well. That's right. So, you know, you started obviously as a generalist and it was fun when I was looking back through <laughs> your list of papers. I mean, I give the residents every time they come on rotation, the JAAOS article on hip dysplasia. And I know it was you and Scad. So you guys probably haven't done a whole lot of hip dysplasia in the past 20 years. But you came out and you got work on club foot, you got work on femur fractures. You said that you had an interest in spine and early on, but how did that transition occur? And sort of how did you build it and how did you foster the spine component of it? And do you miss some of the general components? David Roy at my place is another one of my mentors, and he had been doing a fair amount of spine as a solo pediatric orthopedic surgeon and really a generalist at Columbia when I arrived. And so I knew I was interested in spine and my fellowship was spine heavy, but there really wasn't that much spine to be found in New York in 2001 above what was already being done. The thing that I liked the most clinically was deformity. So just the philosophy of having something broken, crooked, or twisted and being able to fix it. And so that meant a deep dive into things like lower extremity deformity. And I did over 100 spatial frames over the first three yeah. years of practice. And it was really, really fun. Looking back on it, I look at scoliosis. It's really the same thing. Yeah. It's a complex three-dimensional deformity. The tools are slightly different. And my practice slowly evolved. I think that a couple of the things that helped my practice evolve was getting involved in the area of early onset scoliosis early because it was a time where not that many people were interested in that space and it was just before the space really got organized by the study groups and a formal approach to research and I was lucky to be involved in that early. One of the things that I tell my junior partners is find a niche that is not necessarily the thing that everyone's dying to do. One of my young sports people has become really interested in patellofemoral disease and she wants to do ACLs and um, cartilage surgery, but the concept is find a niche and own, own the disease. Own the disease from a clinical point of view, from an academic point of view, maybe biomechanics. Be the person in that space, and then your competency and your visibility, and frankly, your referral brace will grow. And it took a long time. My practice is 100% spine now. I am very fortunate to have a really fun tertiary spine practice, but it took honestly 20 years to get there. And we're all so type A and so driven, and in many ways we're all so impatient. And I think it takes a little while for the new person coming out to realize that this is going to be a long-term build, but it's so worth it. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about your month. And you and I had the opportunity for the listeners to come down and be our Kelly Day professor last year, which is a blast. So I heard a little bit of this, but you have a pretty purposeful way that you set up your weeks. You obviously travel a lot and you've got a lot of responsibilities. You have academic time that you reserve, and you've obviously got a lot of surgical time on clinic-based time, but what's your sort of your week um, look like on a regular basis? I first and foremost like to operate, and I operate two and a half days a week, one week two and one week three days a week, and then it picks up a little bit in the summer. It'd be pretty easy for the clinical part to overwhelm everything and make it hard to do the other stuff, so I very carefully carve some time out of my schedule. Early on, it's harder to do that because you need to see more patients and be more available, but ever since the start of my practice, I took the first fifth Monday of the uh, month 
off completely from any clinical responsibilities. And that allowed me to reliably make a dentist appointment or have a three-day weekend or more often to get done project because I would know that next month I'm going to have a full 24 hours. That concept was codified more recently in the concept of deep work, which is a great book which speaks about the importance of draining the shallows, not just concentrating on emptying your email, but finding some time to really think deeply about what your long-term goals are. And since sort of reading that book and realizing that a lot of maybe my contributions in the year ahead uh, will be more about things that I need to build over time rather than patient in front of me, I've spent a lot more time in deep work. Right now, it's every Monday until 12.30. I don't have any clinical responsibilities, and it creates a great day. I wake up early, work out with my wife at 6 a.m., get the kids out the door at 7, and get four hours reliably to catch up. The other thing that's really helped me is having some very structured research time. So we have two research meetings a week. I go to one of those meetings, but the research team doesn't necessarily know which meeting I'm going to because I want them to meet as a group even if I am not there. I want them to function as autonomously as possible. And those meetings are Monday at noon and Thursday morning. It's getting increasingly hard, especially for the young person coming out because of all the pressures on clinical productivity and RVUs to carve some time out. But I think it's really critically important because a lot of what we do really isn't done as well in uh, fringes and 15 minutes between patients or 10 minutes while you're trying to you know, talk to your wife before you go to sleep. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in the deep work and you sort of introduced that to me as well. I love the idea of sort of staggering your visits to the research team. So maybe explain a little bit more what goes on at your research meetings. How do you, how are they structured? What do you guys try to accomplish? Well, again, I, I was really lucky um, to connect with a, a truly professional researcher. Hiroko Matsumoto has been our researcher for um, almost 20 years, and I've watched her career develop. Uh, she, this year, will get a PhD, and her dissertation is on risk severity scores in, in uh, pediatric spine. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Which is great. Not um, a lot of those in the country. That's great. <laughs> and she has led our research group for all those years. Our research team is composed of Hiroko and two itinerant, usually med students, who come in for a year to learn the design and conduct of research and do some research and strengthen their resume. And then uh, more recently, because of the intensity of the administrative burdens of research, we've had an administrative person who does purely administrative work like organizing agendas, make, making sure there's follow-up meetings, dealing with IRBs, the compliance issues. It's a bit of a chicken and the egg because we really get no core research funding from Columbia or New York Presbyterian, and all of those salaries need to be found. So that means we're really aggressive about applying for grants and every opportunity. Industry funding, you know, wasn't option early on. It's really not much of an option, at least in my world, for clinical research. But all of that grant activity creates its own administrative burden. So that's what I mean. It's a bit of a chicken and the egg. I think that if I could have done one thing differently in that space, I would have worked harder on developing philanthropic uh, support for uh, our clinical research activities because we spend a lot of time just trying to keep the machine going yeah. as opposed to the pure clinical research activities and only now am I getting around to doing that. And the grants, while useful, are oftentimes too small to like really build up one portion of it. Usually you're just, it's a shoestring kind of thing. That's right, and it, it's a bit of a revolving door. And you know, in our world, I think it's a big challenge to get these big NIH multi-center grants because our disease states are really small compared to the NIH priorities. Yeah, I, I heard that there were less than, I think, six orthopedic-related NIH grants. I think that was the number, maybe pediatric, but it's, it's very few. So um, 
Yeah, we struggle with that as well. So how much hands-on work are you doing at this point in your career as a, as a busy clinician and a big leader on the week-to-week -week guiding of research? Does Heroku handle a lot of it? Do you, are you able to still be as involved as you were you know, 15 years ago on the, on the, the decisions? That's a good question, Nick. I'm pretty involved, but maybe involved differently than I was in the past because I have a statistics background. In the past, I would roll up my sleeves and strangle the uh, <laughs> SPSS until it spoke. But you know, now I find myself being a little bit more uh, formal about hypothesis testing, about creating structure to develop good proposals at the outset, and also challenging the team when it comes to the findings or the robustness of the findings sometimes. The other thing that's really been helpful to my research team is maintaining a multidisciplinary focus. So, you know, my research meeting has our quality group in the meeting, it has our clinicians, it has our nurses, and it has our administrative team. So besides the four people, there's maybe 15 people in that room, all of whom are bringing a slightly different perspective to what's happening. And much as in the OR or in any other competitive sport, the more smart people with different perspectives, the better your outcome is. Absolutely. I got one more question on the research side of things. So Heroku is really unique, as you mentioned. How did that come about? It seems as though there are those sort of diamonds in the rough that you can find. We've had some, but they tend to blend more into the basic science side, which for me doesn't, doesn't work as much. How did you find somebody as unique as Heroku who could come on and want to tackle a lot of the clinical side of things that you're looking at? I think a few things happened. We were lucky. I think that in New York City, there's a deeper pool maybe of people, but we found her fortuitously at the beginning because we were doing a study looking at compliance of bracing in club feet. And it was an interesting study where we thought that we needed to increase compliance with bracing after Ponsetti, and we're trying to figure out how to do that. And we connected with a psychometrician who was really smart in this area of drug compliance. And he said, you have absolutely no understanding of human behavior <laughs> and you need to totally change your thinking. Because we thought initially that education and socioeconomic status might be related to compliance. And he said it has to do with the kid's temperament. And in fact, temperament is a trait that you could measure within the first six months of life. And a kid's temperament will drive the parent's behavior, in this case, to remove the kid's braces. Now, all these years later, as a parent with uh, <laughs> kids with various temperament, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I totally see yeah, that. Yeah. But his research assistant was newly from Japan, Hiroko Matsumoto, who was doing this early psychometric work. And we sort of recognized her talent and ability and been lucky to keep her uh, all these years. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's just tremendous. She's, she's such a neat lady. Moving on back sort of into the clinical space. So, you know, I think one of the things that's impressed me so much about you has been your ability to increase the size of your team in a very team-like uh, way. And what I mean by that is you had a reasonably well-known surgeon join the practice a couple of years ago, uh, Larry Lanky. And I think that as a still somewhat junior guy, you know, you're always, for, at least for me, I tend to get a little bit nervous about the idea of somebody invading my space. And I can only imagine if the guy invading my space happens to be one of the better known spinal deformity surgeons on the planet. And, You've made it work, and not only have you made it work, you've really scaled it up to something that's tremendous that seems to help the entire practice. So you've got the adult world covered, you've obviously got the pediatric world covered, and it's been very symbiotic. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Well, I appreciate you saying that, Nick. It was something I thought a lot about. You know, I have an administrative role in the department as well, so one of the hats that I wear requires me to help our uh, chairman as vice chief recruit and build programs. And we were at a time where there was a perfect opportunity to really reinvigorate our spine program, 
hospital wanted to change a hospital over and had the luxury of looking across the globe. And the opportunity to hire Lenke, Rue, and Lehman was really singular. Lenke had been a, a friend of mine, but in all honesty, I certainly felt that potential intimidation building a scoliosis practice and bringing in the world's best known, most accomplished scoliosis <laughs> surgeon. But the reality is, is that almost always one and one makes three, not one and a half. If you are careful about it. I started with a breakfast meeting in Europe with Lenke, and Lenke is an amazing person. He is uh, incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking, and he's earned her. A ridiculous practice, but he's also um, incredibly honest and humble. And I <clears throat> never really had any concerns that we would compete in any way. In fact, I'm not even sure I should say this on the podcast, but early on, uh, he said to me, you know, if I come here, I know you're going to need some things as well. What's the list of things that you need for your practice? And his recruitment was in a way a strategy to allow me to get things like an EOS at my office or a dedicated spine team resources that become hard when you're a mature mid-career surgeon who cannot really add incremental volume to your organization because you're at capacity. Yeah. So it was sort of an acquisition strategy in a sense. <laughs> anyway, um, all these years later, it's been great. We have a, he's added tremendous depth to our multidisciplinary conferences, our quality work, clinical research together, the ability to do things like Spine Safety Summit. And it's been a real highlight of my career working together and trying to help him and his team and grow program. Yeah, it's really neat hearing how you guys all interact and something that we certainly are trying to emulate on a little bit different scale at Children's. Um, it's just, it's remarkable. Let me ask you sort of a, a, a little bit more challenging question. And this has come up and I, I get asked this a lot from, from residents. How do you deal with failures in your practice? I think that I went through residency knowing that it was going to happen to me, but not really expecting what the impact was going to be. And, you know, we're, we've got our symposium going on right now, or they just finished at POSNA on work-life balance and physician betterment. How do you deal with, with failures? And also, how do you deal with the euphoria of successes not making you think, oh, I can handle anything now? No. It's an important question. And I think I'm really happy to see our profession focusing on this formally because those issues were not sufficiently discussed, I think, in the past. And the, the myth is that you come out of your fellowship and you're prepared to do all the stuff that we do on the people that we're doing. The reality is not just in peds orthopedics, but in practice generally, you go into a new place, you're generally doing the work that no one else wants to do. That often means the sicker patients with higher complexity things. And you're may have a pretty good technical skill set, but you don't know the set and setting and you're not able to orchestrate the whole musical expression of what you want to do. You don't know your team very well. You don't know who to call for help. You may not have the best sense of doso surgery, the indications, how much surgery you're going to do for a given kid. And inevitably, we all get those first terrible complications. Mine was um, an early complication where I had a death early on that was really rough and it um, made me really think about who I was and what I was doing and um, if I was too nonchalant doing these big cases quickly. I was lucky to have a number of people to speak with about that early on and I think that's you know one of the keys is that uh, these things need to be discussed really openly. We just had a great talk about the second victim phenomenon. Mm -hmm. These things can be career ending and they can be paralyzing for people. I think that we've gone a long way in making it more obvious how to deal with the complication, both publicly, but also internally, privately. So I still have complications. I, I feel like all these years later, I still hate them, but I'm a little bit better at not allowing it to totally uh, rock my world. And part of our obligation for younger surgeons is to connect with them. So when my younger patients have a complication, I'll often uh, say, 
hey, what are you doing tomorrow night when you can go have a beer and talk about something? Yeah. How about, and how about the other side of things? I mean, I think that I went through periods, I definitely had lots of complications, but I also went through periods where I thought, oh man, you know, that went really well and blood loss was minimal and we got the spine straight, I can do anything. And the next day, you know, you sort of have the opposite side. How do you personally, and then also as, as a mentor to, to younger surgeons, talk to them about not getting ahead of themselves and realizing that every patient offers a new challenge and that you need to prepare for every case the same way, even if you just happen to have one that you knocked out of the park? Well, I think that's right. I think we need to ramp up our skills incrementally, but it's not just the technical skills. It's the skills of how to drive the best outcome to the patient. And one of the concepts I really like is the, uh, the Jack Nicklaus concept, which is playing golf poorly well. And what he says is that every great performer has days where technically he or she may not be executing. Whether you're playing tennis or in the operating room, there are days where I'll miss two screws, three screws in a row, and I'll sort of smile and say, wow, look at this, where 10 or 15 years ago, it probably would have started a cycle of frustration, haste, and, um, and digging a deeper hole. You know, one of the rules of the operating firm for me is if you're digging a hole, stop digging. And uh, it's too easy just to keep on doing the same thing that you're doing over and over again and get yourself into more and more trouble. When I have a situation where just technically things are not happening, that's the time in the operating room where I need to control the room, where I need people to feel not my stress, but, and I need to slow down. That's the time where I'll say to the fellow, don't put your finger on the bleeder, just watch it for a minute if he or she is struggling, because I need to get control over the setting at that point. And that's the time where I'll, I'll stop for a second and have a conversation with the people in the room. I'll say, for whatever reason, I'm not at my top technical game today. Our job together is to get the patient the best outcome that we can. Three hours from now, I wanna have a discussion about how we operated badly well and the patient's perfect. And I think those concepts are really important because we're all gonna have bad days. Yeah, absolutely, I love that. I, that, I remember when you shared that Jack Nicholas comment, I think that's great, so that's good. You're such a big fan of teams. And I'm curious, you talked a little bit about your research team, I know your clinical team, but who's the rest of your team? Who's your team at home? Who's your team sort of outside of the hospital that keeps you engaged and, and not too academic, but also not too separated and, and distant from the hospital? I think that relationships are what keep you out of trouble. Relationships are what get you through the complication, what gets you through the inevitable politics of a work situation, or what give you guidance when you're dealing with a struggling with some family issue, and also what allow you to not get burnt out and oscillate off. So I think about that really formally. I have great relationships in orthopedics and a group of people, you included, Nick, that I know I can come to, talk to, share experiences, good and bad. Early in career, Jack Flynn, Dave Skaggs, Min Coker, and Ken Noonan, and I all really invested on um, supporting each other's lives, not just career. And that means I may call Dave and say, I'm really struggling with whether or not I should hire this person. What are your thoughts? Or some career opportunity that may approach. Or, uh, you know, I may call um, Jack and say, look, your kids are a little bit older, but my oldest kid is giving us a hard time about that. Having the ability to uh, bounce those type of things to get outside your own silo and increase your vision, I think is really critical. And I'm lucky I have a great group of friends and wife and relationships at work that have been tremendously helpful for me there. Talk a little bit, if you will, because I love it, that you and Chris Ahmad have this great relationship where you sort of act as coaches for one another, even though, and obviously now you're writing a book together, but you uh, are able to coach each other, even though he's a shoulder guy or a knee guy, and he's got this huge sports career, which you do none of, and you're this, no. you do spine, which he does none of. But you have similar interests, and you're in the same department, but I love that, that concept. We've used it also internally where we're at. 
Another great example of an area that I'm really fortunate. Chris Ahmad was an orthopedic resident with me. We were both in LA when we did different fellowships together. Our wives are great friends, our kids are great friends. We go on a ski vacation every year. But as you say, we've also taken a very formal approach towards mutual coaching and mutual mentorship. So once a month, we'll have breakfast together and spend an hour and a half on a very specific topic. It varies day by day, but a very specific topic. For example, how to improve your leadership in the area of philanthropy or how to balance situations with your kids at home. And that led to a project that we're working on. In fact, it's our current emphasis on our deep work project. Every Monday morning, I'll spend a few hours working on a book on uh, performance with Ahmad. And it's been really helpful. Again, having another set of eyes, a different perspective, an outside view, because it's the same thing. Sometimes you can get yourself deeper and deeper into a hole, investing in the same thing that you're doing, not realizing that other people have gone through some of these things before and we need to think differently about it. Chris is one of the other vice uh, chiefs of the Department of Orthopedics now, and he and I and uh, Bill Levine uh, have been have had a lot of fun helping with some of the orthopedic stuff and uh, giving each other very honest advice about the complex world that we live in. That's great. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about, obviously, the reason that we're in Charlotte, which is POSNA, and it's, it's amazing. You've got a complete alphabet soup of organizations that you're involved <laughs> with, which is great, and we've gotten to know each other, I think, probably first through POSNA, but also SRS and HARMS and ICHIOS, and I think one of the biggest challenges that I have is figuring out how to balance and how to prioritize within those different organizations, because they all have very different missions. They all have a lot that can be done to maximize them. How did you start that road in uh, along the leadership track, not just for positive, but for all of them? And how do you sort of balance it now? You know, early on, my, my early investments were in early onset scoliosis. I became part of the Children's Spine Study Group, which actually just merged with the Growing Spine Study Group. And that was a meeting I just came from. IPOS was another early opportunity. I was very, very uh, fortunate to be able to work with uh, Jack Flynn on helping with IPOS over the years. As my practice migrated into more spine, it became natural for me to get involved in SRS and some of the great work that SRS has done. And then most recently, I uh, really feel privileged to have the opportunity to play a leadership role in POSNA, which is an amazing organization. The balance of it all is hard. Your roles change in these organizations over time. So just as I was saying that my role in the research group changed. Over time, you have the ability to perhaps make more strategic contributions and be a little less in the weeds about some of the day-to-day -day activities. And there are a lot of big opportunities, but also challenges for Pod. I'm curious, you, in addition to doing all of this, have been involved in, you've run triathlons, you've run marathons. You and your wife are very active together to work out with her weekly. And I love the idea of, obviously, work-life balance. What's that balance for you now, especially with four kids and, and, and the amount of work you do? Yeah, it's not easy, and, and maybe it's not ideal, but a couple of the things that I think about are Friedman's book about leading the life you want to live. And he talks about not so much work-life balance, but overlapping your circle. So any time I have a chance to overlap my circles, I think of my circles as self, personal, as a family, wife, as work, career, and as virtual, long-term issues. Anytime you have a chance to overlap that circles, you win. So my 6 a.m. workout with my wife is a carved out opportunity where I get to overlap those circles. Now that my kids are getting a little bit older, the ski trip with my kids, the one-on-one -on -one time, my kids are running triathlons and just starting to catch up on me for all opportunities <laughs> to overlap. They're going to pass you soon. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm still able to fight the fight, but it, it is a challenge because we are all so busy with so many things. 
I think that one of the concepts that came out of the Spine Safety Summit is that you have to protect yourself first in order to protect your patients. So things like exercise, sleep, meditation are really critically important. And if you're not getting your minimum dose of those things, you're probably not doing the best that you can do for your patients. I was actually going to ask you about that. So to avoid sort of burnout, is there one thing that you would say has been most helpful for you from a general daily stability standpoint? How does Mike Vitale maintain that level of mental stability on a daily basis? You know, I was listening to all the really interesting, great talks about burnout in the room earlier today, and it struck me that part of the thing that's really helped me not feel so burnt out so much is the satisfaction that I get out of work and the reality that I don't feel that my work is out of control. Even though I'm at a big organization, because of various roles and maybe because of the dynamic, if I feel that we need to change processes around surgical site infection or ORs, I can do that across my whole team of surgeons. And if we need to make some tweaks to the compensation plan, we can do that. That's obviously a privilege that you get later in career. But I think that the lesson is it's the perception of loss of control that really is the first trigger for burnout. And we all have more control than we want. You can't control 100% of things. But you know, my question to a young colleague who's coming to me frustrated about a situation is always the same. You, you make, you know, someone came to me recently and was telling me how uh, frustrated he was about his inability to, to get sports cases through our tertiary care hospital in a timely manner. What 10% of the world can you control? What's the 10% that is within your control. Can you standardize your implants so there's no questions about it? Can you request or invest in a few nurses who always know what they're doing? There's always something you can control, and I think control is the antidote to burnout, even if it's an imperfect uh, solution. The other concept is oscillation, and I oscillate a lot between things. I think that exercise, running the marathon, running the half marathon, or the triathlons, allow me to oscillate between intensity at work and diversion and escape. The more and more I've been trying to respect sleep, uh, which I was not very good at for a long, long time, and also getting into meditation, which uh, doesn't come natural to me either. But I think there are strategies for sort of cooling the fuel rods uh, in the nuclear reactor. Yeah. I got a couple of fun questions to tie it off with. So first is, you do a lot of spine surgery, and I have a lot of things that I love about spine surgery. What is your favorite procedure that you do in spine? You know, it's changed over the years. My favorite procedure these days is either a hemivert resection or a spondylophosis or spondylosthesis. I actually did that two or three recently because, you know, it, it really reflects this concept of twisted kid, incredible amount of deformity. You know, spondylophosis cases, you have so much deformity over such a small area. And you start the case, you make what's a relatively small incision for us, but you have so much work to do in order to deliver that patient safely uh, to a good outcome. And those cases are challenging. I always do them with a neurosurgeon. I'm really uh, fortunate to have Rich Anderson in my place, a great neurosurgeon, great partner, friend, collaborator. I have a plastic surgeon that helps me with any complex case where I know I'm going to be there a long time, especially a thin kid, a heavy kid. I'm also really fortunate to have an advanced spine fellowship where we attract uh, really great people, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons that have done at least one previous fellowship. So I have another partner in the room for all these cases. So those are the fun cases for me at this point in career. You know, other points in the career, I, I may have said growing rods or magic rods or adolescent and neuropathic scoliosis, and they're really all fun. Yeah. Um, what we get to do is really so fun. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Who do you view as the most successful person? And success is based on your interpretation that you know. Tough question. Um, and everyone looks at, defines success differently. 
One of the things I try to do is define, uh, surround myself by people who I seek to emulate, who I want to be successful like. And that's really led me to you know, spend time with Jack Flynn, Dave Skaggs, Ken Noonan, and Min Coker. We get together on the Wednesday of every Pazna and the Wednesday of every Ikios. And there's literally not a day that goes by where uh, there's not a text stream among the four or five of us. When I look at that group, what makes them successful to me is how they you know, not only um, developed a very successful clinical practice and been really honest and true in delivering great outcomes to kids, but how they've been successful at home with kids, family, wives. And that's hard. It's aspirational. It's a struggle. But I think the more you sort of surround yourself by people you want to emulate, the better you get at that. And we're all on a journey, and none of it's easy. That's a good group, though. All right, so you came last year and gave this amazing talk, actually a couple talks, but one was to not only the surgeons in the room, but my wife and spouses, and they loved it. And you remember that afterwards we emailed you for your book list. And I, one of the things that I love is that you've given me a lot of great reading. And now I subscribe to the Nappuccino concept after that. <laughs> I know you've shared that with a lot of people. Obviously, you're writing a book, but what's the most common book that you either give to people or that you recommend that they read? You no, know, it varies. I, I, I've done a lot more reading in the last two or three years in this sphere uh, because of the, the book I'm working on. In fact, in a way, I hope we don't finish this book because <laughs> the journey is more as, as important to me personally as the product. The books that I like right now are Black Box Thinking by Matthew Syed. Amazing book, which really brings home the concept that we are bad at learning in medicine from our previous mistake. Compared to other industries like aviation, we continue to make the same mistakes over and over. It took us 1,500 years to abandon bloodletting as a medical treatment. You know, we killed George Washington. If you hear his last accounts, he had like three liters of blood taken from him at the end. And I think we're all at risk of doing that. I was just shaken up because at our place uh, about two months ago, one of my partners operated on a kid with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, went uneventfully. The kid had a wound issue, was taken to the operating room, and coded on the table and died. And he had a P from a DVT, and it made us all think about w whether or not we should be and coagulating kids like that more. This just happened. And just today, I ran into a friend and younger colleague who came to me and said, I really need to talk to you about something. And I saw the second victim look in his face, and he told me the same story. He had a kid with Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Wow. Coated on a table. So, you know, I, I think I can't let that go in good faith without publishing those things, without at least being provocative to peers about whether or not we should have a checklist for anticoagulation in kids who are obese or immobile or in the ICU for a certain amount of time. I think we have an obligation to learn from those mistakes. If it, if it happens again and we don't, shame on us. Yeah. Uh, the other book that I love is a book that Steve Frick gave me recently called Farsighted. It's a book about optimizing decision-making, and a lot of it talks about how to escape the, the binary decision round, not just to think about normal A or B as outcomes, but C, D, and E, and also expanding your team so you have a broader set of eyes helping you make those decisions. Yeah, that's great. Uh, last question. So what do you think has been the, your a position on patient management, just in general, that has changed the most over time for you. And it's amazing, even in 10 years, the number of things that I knew were truth 10 years ago and now, now aren't truth. But what do you think is number one there for you? Well, I mean, there's, there's content and then there's process. The process stuff has changed dramatically to me. I really didn't understand 15 years ago that variability causes harm. Variability is the enemy. Variability, anytime you decrease variability, you make your 
operating room and your patient care system. Same for standardization is critically important. I invest a lot more in those things in my OR than ever before. Uh, checklists, uh, procedural controls. The other concept is teams. And early on, I, I thought I could work harder and work my way through anything, but that strategy will not last. I now seek to surround myself by smarter and better people who can help me do what I need to do for my patients. So those are some of the sort of big concepts that I think have been much different for me or been this last, you know, nine holes of practice. And I mean, you've definitely borne that out through the safety summit. And that's been sort of the whole focus of that is minimizing variability, maximizing team effort, and trying to get everybody working at the same level. So that's great. Well, this has been awesome. Like I said, hopefully somebody sometime hears this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. But if not, just <laughs> the opportunity to spend an hour <laughs> exactly. to hear about it has, has been great. So I appreciate it. Thanks, Nick. We appreciate you, everything you do for Paz. So. Thank you. Thanks, man. Yeah, You're absolutely. a professional, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.